Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History. It's your host, Joe. I'm recording this uh, the middle of July, almost basically right after the historically the Gettysburg campaign ended. <laughs> um, and this is, I think, going to be the next to last episode of what I'm calling like the main series. Um, again, I'm going to try to do some bonus episodes where I cover some stuff after the campaign and some little extra things before I take a little hiatus and contemplate what my next project will be. This episode will pick up basically exactly where we left off in the last one, and we'll cover the events of July 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th. And as always, make sure to like the Excuse Me History Facebook page for updates and supplemental information like maps to help follow along with the episode. Of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on whatever app that you use, and if it's possible, give us a five-star rating. And without further ado, let's start the show. By the morning of July 7th, almost the entire Confederate army had reached Hagerstown, Maryland. Their retreat had been executed well, all things considered. Had they better protected the pontoon bridge at Falling Waters, they might have been able to cross the river that day, but there was no bridge and weather conditions had yet to improve. Soldiers and livestock were once again drenched by an overnight downpour. Like every other town that the Confederates passed through during the campaign, Hagerstown and the surrounding area was plundered for food and supplies. Private W.B. Jenkins of the 22nd Georgia Infantry Wright's Brigade recorded, quote, Two soldiers in the regiment went off somewhere and killed a large sheep, stole it, the lowest down stealing of all, but we did not stand on formalities for a hungered soldier would steal anything that he could eat, for we were nearly all the time hungry, and we were not going to let a sheep bite them anywhere. They brought it in and we barbecued it, putting salt, vinegar, and red pepper on it. We would get one side cooked and turn it over to cook the other side, and what was cooked on the top side we would eat to where it was raw, while the other side was cooking, eating it without any bread at all, for we had none of that for five days. When the other side was cooked we turned it over and ate that, and by the time it was cooked it was all eaten. It did not take 22 men as hungry as we were long to eat a sheep weighing about 75 pounds." Unquote. Private David E. Hold of the 16th Mississippi Infantry, Posey's Brigade, was out in the area foraging with a group of his fellow Mississippians when they came across a cellar filled with barrels. One soldier shouted, Whiskey! Get a crowbar! Holt wrote in his memoirs, quote, Some members of the 16th Mississippi helped him break open the door. Before them was a cellar full of liquor. The men flocked in, knocking out the heads of barrels and filling canteens, recalled Private Riley. As fast as one set got out, another took its place. Major Council went down to try and get the men out, and separate those who were fighting, but they rolled a barrel of whiskey over them. It was impossible to do anything with them, and the whiskey had to give out before the men could be dispersed. Long after daylight, the brigade moved out of town and into a field where it could sober up. That was the biggest drunk I ever saw." Drunkenness was always an issue with any body of soldiers when they came across a large supply of liquor. Officers who were teetotalers, usually the more religious ones, would order any whiskey seized to be guarded or destroyed. In some cases, a a certain level of revelry was allowed by the higher-ups, but when you give a bunch of mostly young 20-year-old men a cache of booze, they're probably not going to be imbibing it for the flavor, 
they're going to get smashed because in the 19th century, there's not much else to do. And this is especially true for a bunch of bored soldiers who'd probably like to forget about the battle they just fought and the horrible conditions of the past few days. The situation in Hagerstown was not helped by the fact that the officer named Provost Marshal of the town, Colonel Robert Mayo, commander of the 47th Virginia Infantry of Brockenbro's Brigade, joined in in the booze fest and was arrested for drunkenness on July 7th. Later that summer, he was found guilty by a court-martial of violating army regulations. His punishment was supposed to have been a reduction in rank, but the sentence was never carried out, and he retained command of the 47th until the end of the war. One thing I've never come across in any of my reading about Gettysburg was the possibility that Mayo might have been drunk during Pickett's charge. You might recall that Robert Mayo appeared to have gone missing at some point before the assault began and was rumored to have been killed. His participation in the charge is rather suspect, and while no one seems to have mentioned the possibility that he might have been too drunk to lead the regiment, the July 7th incident has led me to speculate. And again, I've not found any direct evidence to prove this claim, but I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility. Officers drinking while in duty was not terribly uncommon in the war. In fact, there were several prominent generals who were notorious for being drunk most of the time. It was usually only seen as a problem if the officers became visibly drunk and it affected their ability to carry out their duties. Not to digress too much on the subject, but this is one of the reasons why Ulysses Grant developed the reputation as being a drunk. He wasn't some hard-drinking guy as he's sometimes portrayed. In fact, he was actually a lightweight and couldn't handle his liquor, which would lead to him embarrassing himself publicly. To many Americans of the Victorian era, this was seen as a moral failing. Besides the issue of alcohol, there were many other important matters at hand. Because the army would not be able to cross into Virginia, at least for the next day or so, the problem of dealing with the wounded needed to be addressed. Many men were in dire need of medical care, as the ambulance ride from Gettysburg had worsened their condition. Dozens of buildings in Hagerstown and Williamsport were turned into hospitals and would house the sick and wounded. Hagerstown would remain under Confederate occupation for the next few days as the high command of the army contemplated what to do. Private Florence McCarthy of the 7th Virginia Infantry, Kemper's Brigade, came into the town late on the 7th. Pickett's demolished division was being used to guard the thousands of Union prisoners that accompanied the army. They too were forced to wait to cross the swollen river. Upon his arrival in Williamsport, McCarthy had this to say, quote, Williamsport is a one-horse town. The houses are riddled and almost all deserted, and the country for a mile round is fetid with beef offal and dead horses, unquote. Private Norval Baker of the 18th Virginia Cavalry and Bowdoin's Brigade recalled, quote, Our horses' backs were raw with ulcers, one and two inches deep and full of maggots. The greenflies had put up a big job on us. Our blankets were full of maggots and rotten. Our saddles had from a pint to a quart of maggots in them, unquote. The congregation of so many animals combined with the extremely wet weather led to an almost unbearably disgusting situation. In an attempt to relieve some of the pressure at Williamsport, animals were forced to swim across the river, which led to mixed results at best. Some managed to make it to the Virginia side, but a thousand head of sheep and 700 cattle were swept away in the currents and drowned. As I alluded to in the last episode, the southern public was largely in the dark per events in Maryland and Pennsylvania. Southern war correspondents did not follow the army across the Mason-Dixon line. R.E. Lee had a zero-tolerance policy when it came to newspaper reporters and did not allow them to hang around his headquarters. The few reporters that made it as far north as the Potomac were still unsure of the army's status. They mostly depended on hearsay from the few soldiers that had crossed back over the river, as well as what was reported in major northern newspapers of which they could get a hold. 
A correspondent with the Richmond Inquirer wrote about this time, quote, We hear as little from the Confederate Army as if it were in the middle of Africa, unquote. While at Hagerstown, Lee took the time to write to his wife on July 7th, quote, I have heard with great grief, my dear Mary, that Rooney has been captured by the enemy. I had not expected that he would have been taken from his bed and carried off, but we must bear this additional affliction with fortitude and resignation, and not repine at the will of God. It will eventuate in some good that we know not of now. I am particularly grieved on your account and Charlotte's. Tell the latter it will all come to good in the end. I fear I will not be able to write her, but say for me all I feel, and would say if opportunity offered. Tell dear cousin Anne I am grateful for her sympathy, but I must bear this as I have to bear other things. I have sent a check for a thousand dollars to Mr. C for you. Thank Agnes for her affectionate letter and say I will write when I can. Kiss my precious life for me. We are all well and bear our labors and hardships manfully. Our noble men are cheerful and confident. May God in his mercy bless our efforts to save our country. I constantly remember you in my thoughts and in my prayers. May God bless you all as my constant prayer. With true affection, R.E. Lee. Unquote. Lee wasn't quite as forthcoming as Meade was in his letters, and he comes across a good deal more religious than his Union counterpart. The other thing he mentions in the letter that I want to comment on was the news of his son's capture. All the way back in episode 4, which focused on the Battle of Brandy Station, I talked about the wounding of Lee's son, who commanded a brigade in Stuart's cavalry division. General William Henry Fitzhugh Lee, better known as Rooney, was captured by Yankee cavalry during his recuperation just a few days after the battle. He spent the rest of 1863 and early winter of 1864 in captivity, first at Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia, and later in New York. The elder Lee mentioned his son's wife, Charlotte, in the letter. She died in December of 1863 before her husband was exchanged for a Union general. While the Confederate Army was massed between Hagerstown and Williamsport, the Army of the Potomac was finally on the move. By now, it was too late to beat the rebels to the river, but the high water levels of the Potomac still presented General George Meade with an opportunity. If they acted quickly enough, the Union Army could trap Lee's force on the north bank of the river. At this time, multiple federal forces were moving in the direction of Williamsport. Potentially the most helpful to Meade was the command of Brigadier General Benjamin Franklin Kelly. Kelly came up many episodes ago, but only in passing. He was a 53-year-old New Hampshire native who had settled in Wheeling, Virginia, modern-day West Virginia, in 1836, where he worked for the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. He began the Civil War as colonel of the 1st Virginia Union Infantry, later known as the 1st West Virginia Infantry. In 1863, he commanded a division of roughly 4,500 men that was dubbed the Railroad Division, originally part of the Middle Department, but on June 28th, Kelly was promoted to command of the new Department of West Virginia. During the Gettysburg Campaign, his force was dispersed in the area between Grafton and Clarksburg, West Virginia. Following the battle, Kelly was ordered to gather up his available troops and move east to block the Ford sites on the Potomac. Two days earlier, on July 5th, he received a telegram from General Halleck at 9.30 p.m. that read, quote, Send forward your forces in hand and order the others to follow as rapidly as possible, unquote. And then 30 minutes later, he received a second message that urged him to, quote, do everything in your power to capture or destroy Lee's trains, which will endeavor to cross at Williamsport or Falling Waters. His army is in full retreat, unquote. Then after another half hour, he received another dispatch, this time from Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, that admonished him for his slow pace, quote, 
I have seen your dispatch to the Adjutant General and regret to hear you talk about some days to concentrate when minutes are precious. The instructions and information given by the General-in-Chief this evening will show what an opportunity you have by rapid and vigorous motion to inflict a heavy blow upon the enemy. It will be a matter of deep regret if by tardy movement you let the chance escape. There should be no rest, night or day. Why are you still at Clarksburg? Unquote. Kelly did manage to get his forces on the move shortly after. By the night of the 6th, they'd reached Cumberland, Maryland, the original starting point of the old National Road, and Kelly promised to reach Hancock, Maryland by the following evening. The 7 Union Army Corps got on the march at daybreak on the 7th. General Oliver Otis Howard's 11th and General George Sykes' 5th Corps headed down the Emmitsburg Road toward that eponymous town and then marched through Kriegerstown, Utica, then through High Knob Pass and Catoctin Mountain, and finally Middletown. General John Sedgwick, leading his own 6th Corps, as well as John Newton's 1st and David Burney's 3rd Corps, marched to Middletown, passing through Emmitsburg, Mechanicstown, Lewistown, and Hamburg. Finally, General Henry Slocum, leading his own 12th and Hayes' 2nd Corps, plus the Artillery Reserve, would march along the more circuitous route from Littlestown and Two Taverns, Pennsylvania, to Tawnytown, Maryland, Middleburg, Woodsboro, Frederick, and then Middletown. The only exception was General Thomas Neal's Light Division, which pursued the Confederates as they retreated. They briefly skirmished with the rebel rear guard west of South Mountain on the 6th, but did nothing to slow them down. On the 7th, they arrived at Waynesboro after Ewell's troops had vacated the town. J.M. Walker of the 61st Pennsylvania recorded in his diary, quote, At Waynesboro, the citizens, men, women, and children, formed on the sidewalks and handed us bread, sliced and buttered, cooked meats, pies, and almost everything in the eatable line we could take in our hands as we marched by. This was a bright spot to remain fresh in the soldiers' memory through life. We camped near the town, and the citizens sent to Chambersburg for flour and baked bread, selling to us at the lowest prices, often below the cost of flour, besides giving us large quantities without pay. All honor to Waynesboro." Neal's Light Division would continue to track the Confederate rear guard as they retreated, up until they reached Leitersburg, Maryland. It would be a tough march for all on July 7th. In the diaries, letters, and memoirs, Union soldiers mentioned one or more of four basic things. It rained, they had little or no food, their shoes were worn out, and the prospects of fighting the Confederates on northern soil again. Captain Jacob Haas of the 96th Pennsylvania Infantry, Bartlett's Brigade, wrote in his diary, quote, all very short on rations, three crackers apiece, commenced to rain and continued all night, all suffered from hunger, fatigue, and exposure, unquote. Captain William Kepler, 4th Ohio of Carroll's Gibraltar Brigade, remembered, quote, The entire army seemed to be in motion. We arrived at Tawnytown at noon. In the afternoon, it rained very hard. We were out of rations and obtained provisions from the civilians, unquote. Meade and his staff arrived at Frederick, Maryland in the afternoon. The army supplies were in the process of being routed to the city, but for the most part, they were in pretty rough shape. It didn't help that they were trailing a rebel army which had stripped the land of anything of use like a plague of locusts. A reporter with the Army of the Potomac wrote of the situation, quote, Every hotel, eating house, and private house in Frederick and all the surrounding towns through which the army passed have been completely eaten out, stripped of everything edible and imbibable and the hundreds of hungry officers are turned away from the hotels every hour, disappointed at not being able to get a meal, and as for forage for horses, it is most as scarce as gold dollars. The crops are abundant, but the men can't eat hay, straw, and raw corn. 
and the farmers have exhausted their supplies of bacon, bread, and vegetables in supplying the soldiers. If such is our condition, what must that of the rebels be, who have no large cities to draw supplies from as we have? Unquote. While in Frederick, Meade made another change to his staff. After General Dan Butterfield stepped down as his chief of staff, he named Generals Alfred Pleasanton and Governor Warren as his interim co-chiefs. But both men had other important duties, so Meade finally found a permanent replacement, General Andrew A. Humphreys. At the age of 52, Andrew Humphreys was actually five years older than Meade. Like the army commander, he was from a prominent Philadelphia family. His grandfather, Joshua, was the U.S. Navy's chief of construction in the late 1790s and early 1800s. After designing and constructing the first six U.S. warships, including perhaps the most famous warship in American history, the USS Constitution, he was nicknamed the father of the U.S. Navy. Andrew's father, Samuel, was also the naval construction chief in the mid-1800s. Andrew, however, entered West Point and began an Army career in 1831 as an artillery officer. He resigned his commission in 1836 after his disgust with the Army's handling of the Seminole War, but returned a few years later as a topographical engineer and notably worked with then-Secretary of War Jefferson Davis surveying land in the western United States for a potential transcontinental railroad. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Humphreys was captain in the Topographical Engineer Corps. His expertise led him to being named the chief engineer for the Army of the Potomac, though many in Washington distrusted him due to his ties to Jeff Davis. By the summer of 1862, he was promoted to Brigadier General of Volunteers and given command of a division in the Fifth Corps, which he led at Antietam, Fredericksburg, and Chancellorsville. Following the latter battle, his division was transferred to the Third Corps. Upon Meade's ascension to Army Command, he asked Humphreys to consider becoming his Chief of Staff, but he declined as he was reluctant to give up his combat command. Humphreys was noted as a brave leader in battle, but was not well-liked by his soldiers. He had the reputation of being a martinet, and even at 52 was older than most generals in the army. If you'll recall, he made a couple of appearances in previous episodes when his division was attacked by the Confederates near the Peach Orchard on July 2nd. His three brigades were nearly destroyed in the defense, which made the decision to accept Meade's second offer to become his chief of staff easier to accept. While in Frederick, Meade also learned two important bits of information. The first was of a more personal nature. He was promoted to Brigadier General in the regular U.S. Army. It's a bit complicated to describe, but basically Civil War ranks were temporary. They only apply to the Volunteer Army. So while Meade was a major general of volunteers, this would change once the war was over, if it ever did. But now he would revert back to Brigadier General instead of his pre-war rank of captain. In addition to the promotion, Meade received an official thanks of Congress for his leadership in the victory at Gettysburg. The second thing he learned at Frederick was that another major campaign had recently ended in a Union victory. Earlier on the 7th, news of the Confederate surrender at Vicksburg reached the capital. One man present at the White House was Noah Brooks. Brooks was a newspaper correspondent in Washington who covered the Lincoln administration for the Sacramento Daily Union. He was also a friend of Lincoln's going back to the 1850s and would later write a biography of the man in which he described the events of July 7th. Quote, the first news of the capitulation of Vicksburg, by the way, was received at the Navy Department about noon, July 7th, in a dispatch from Admiral Porter. Secretary Wells astonished everybody who knew him by putting on his hat and solemnly proceeding to the White House to tell the news to President Lincoln. It was said at the time that the secretary, on arriving at the executive chamber, executed a double shuffle and threw up his hat by way of showing that he was the bearer of glad tidings. 
This was a mere invention, but Lincoln did say that he never before nor afterward saw Mr. Wells so thoroughly excited as he was then. Soon, however, Washington was straining its attention toward Maryland, where, it was popularly supposed, the Army of the Potomac, under the command of General Meade, had at last corralled Lee and all his forces, supplies, and guns in an elbow of the Potomac between Williamsport and Falling Waters. After the Battle of Gettysburg, railroad communication was again resumed between the Ely House on the Baltimore and Washington line and the town of Frederick, Maryland. This last-named place then became the Union base of supplies, and immense quantities of stores were forwarded at once. We were in almost hourly expectation of a great battle which should be fought on Maryland soil and result in the annihilation of the Army of Virginia and the hastening of the collapse of the rebellion." Unquote. A dispatch from President Lincoln to General Halleck was forwarded to Meade. It read, quote, We have certain information that Vicksburg surrendered to General Grant on the 4th of July. Now if General Meade can complete his work, so gloriously prosecuted thus far, by the literal or substantial destruction of Lee's army, the rebellion will be over. Unquote. I've mentioned Vicksburg a few times on this podcast, but I want to take a moment to talk a little bit more about its significance. Control of the Mississippi River had long been a priority of both United and Confederate States governments. In April 1862, New Orleans, the mouth of the Mississippi, was surrendered to Union forces, and by the winter of that year, the Confederates only controlled a small stretch of the river from Vicksburg, Mississippi to Port Hudson, Louisiana. From December 1862 until July 1863, various Union armies worked to capture these remaining rebel strongholds. General Ulysses Grant had failed in his initial attempts at forcing Vicksburg's surrender, but after a brilliant spring offensive, his forces crossed the Mississippi and defeated Confederate forces in a series of battles, compelling them to retreat into Vicksburg. Grant's army besieged the so-called Gibraltar of the South, and after one month, two weeks, and two days, Confederate General John C. Pemberton surrendered unconditionally to Grant. Nearly 30,000 rebel soldiers were captured in the process. Five days later, Port Hudson surrendered to General Nathaniel P. Banks. The Confederacy was split in half. Combined with the news at Gettysburg, this was a huge blow to the Confederate cause. As Lincoln alluded to in his telegram to Halleck, bagging Lee's army before it could slip into Virginia was now of utmost importance. This put a tremendous amount of pressure on Meade, whose army was still many miles from the Army of Northern Virginia. Luckily for him, the Army of the Potomac made tremendous progress on the 7th in spite of the continuing poor weather conditions. The rain at this point, while certainly annoying to the soldiers, was still keeping the rebels trapped in Maryland. Like the leadership in Washington, the common soldier was elated by the Confederate capitulation at Vicksburg. While the Union First Corps was crossing over Catoctin Mountain en route to Middletown, General John C. Robinson delivered the news of Grant's victory to the soldiers of his division. Quote, Soldiers, the news of your glorious victory at Gettysburg has been telegraphed to the West. I propose three cheers to Grant and his army, feeling assured that while we shout their victories from this mountaintop, they are shouting our victory along the Mississippi Valley, unquote. The foot soldiers responded enthusiastically with three Union hurrahs. Sergeant Lucian Voorhees of the 15th New Jersey, Torbert's Brigade, wrote in a letter at home about their descent from Catoctin Mountain, quote, down, down we came, hobbling over rocks and wading through mud and water, into a fertile valley in which Middletown is located, whence we proceeded. Rations being out, the men complained considerably, but we soon received three days' rations of hardtack and salt pork, which we devoured with avidity. During the afternoon we cleaned our pieces, received a mail, and heard of the fall of Vicksburg, which cheered us considerably. 
unquote. Confidence in Meade's ability to defeat Lee again varied. Corporal John C. Williams of the 14th Vermont recorded, quote, The Army is again in motion this morning. The 1st Army Corps left the field about 8 o'clock this morning, and it commenced to rain soon after. We marched some two miles before we had fairly passed off the late field of conflict. We marched on, leaving the ever-to-be-remembered battleground in our rear, and arrived at Emmitsburg about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and halted for the night. I fear that the efforts to bag Lee will prove a failure, for he is already a day and a half the start of us, and unless we have a sufficient force at Williamsport, the rebel army will effect an escape. Unquote. But some remained optimistic. Private Robert H. Davis wrote of Meade, quote, We were satisfied with his generalship. It inspired us with renewed courage, believing our country had at last found more than a match for General Lee. Unquote. Seconding Private Davis's confidence, Sergeant Ellis C. Strauss of the 57th Pennsylvania Infantry recorded in his diary, quote, We are after the enemy. Our corps, the third, has not yet started, but we are expecting to go every minute. The boys are confident that we will whip Lee's army so that he will not be fit to do anything more for some time to come. We have good news all the while from our pursuing forces, unquote. But for the average infantryman, it was difficult to understand the big picture. Private George A. Hussey of the 83rd New York Baxter's Brigade wrote of the mindset of the common soldier during this pivotal time, quote, The private soldier knows but little of the plans of the commanding general. He is but a mere instrument in the hands of those in authority, and the greater the subordination of the rank and file, the more effective to these instruments become in the hands of brave and skillful generals. But the men composing the Union Army had a fashion of doing a good deal of thinking, and also expressing their thoughts upon their commanding officers, and the conduct of the campaigns in which they were engaged. Never before in the history of the world did an army contain so many thinking bayonets, and as the Union troops plodded along this stern chase after the defeated Confederates, many were the conjectures as to when and where Meade would bring the enemy to bay, and by a bold stroke, crush him before he could recross into Virginia." Unquote. Despite the poor weather, Union soldiers marched almost all day in order to close the gap between them and the Confederates. Lieutenant Colonel Rufus Dawes, commander of the 6th Wisconsin of the Iron Brigade, recalled, quote, Our men have toiled and suffered as never before. Almost half our men have marched barefooted for a week. I have not slept in a dry blanket or had on dry clothing since crossing the Potomac before the battle. If we can end this war right here, I will cheerfully abide the terrible risk of another battle, and certainly personal discomforts are small comparatively. Unquote. The Union First Corps traveled over Catoctin Mountain en route to Middletown, after which Private Wilbur Fisk of the 2nd Vermont Infantry boldly exaggerated, quote, Napoleon crossing the Alps will no longer be mentioned as the climax of heroic achievements. Sedgwick marching over the Catoctin Mountains has entirely eclipsed that, unquote. I'm always amused when Civil War soldiers not only compare their feats to those of the past, but claim that what they did was even more impressive. Colonel Charles Wainwright, the 1st Corps Artillery Brigade commander, led his batteries during the march on the 7th. Even with near-constant rain and muddy roads, the brigade covered an impressive 32 miles. But not all of the artillery had such an easy go of it. He noted in his diary a conversation he witnessed between Generals John Sedgwick and John Newton, quote, General Sedgwick was talking to Newton on top of the hill, his infantry just beginning to arrive, when Tompkins rode up and reported that it was impossible to get the artillery up that night. His batteries, he said, were close behind mine, and I had got off the road, and he was stuck in the mud for the night. Newton crowed, and Uncle John was mad, unquote. 
As the Army of the Potomac moved down the eastern side of South Mountain, a force of militia led by General Baldy Smith was on the opposite side, heading to reinforce the main army. They'd previously been at Harrisburg and skirmished with Jeb Stuart's cavalry at Carlisle, Pennsylvania on July 1st, and once Lee's army began its retreat, they were ordered to move down the Cumberland Valley. But compared to the veteran volunteer soldiers, the militiamen were a sorry lot. The barely organized rabble trudged down the valley at a snail's pace. Private George W. Wingate of the 22nd New York National Guard recalled their comically awful experience. Quote, as the pitchy blackness rendered everything invisible, a lantern was carried at the head of the column to prevent those from being lost. Every few minutes, we would be plunged into a mountain stream running across the road, and which could be heard falling an indefinite distance from down the other side, wading across this, in an instant more, we would find ourselves struggling knee-deep in mud of an unequaled tenacity. And the efforts made to extricate ourselves generally resulted in getting tripped up by projecting roots and stumps. As those in front reached an obstacle, they passed the word down the line. Stump! Ford! Stones! Mudhole! Frequently, this latter cry became altered to Man in a mudhole! Two men in a mudhole! Look out sharp! Unquote. Meanwhile, the cavalry of both armies were still concentrated in the area between Williamsport and Hagerstown and Boonesboro. Confederate horse soldiers clashed with the vedettes of Thomas Devon's brigade near St. James College and the 6th U.S. Cavalry of Merritt's brigade in the area of Funkstown. Buford's cavalry counterattacked the Confederates, but they were forced to retreat across Antietam Creek when the 11th Virginia Cavalry arrived. Compared to July 6th, it was a fairly quiet day for the cavalry, but things would heat up again tomorrow. This was a crucial period for both armies. Lee hoped to reach the river untouched so that they could cross if the river permitted them to do so, or have enough time to throw up defensive works in the event that they were attacked. Meade, of course, hoped to get to Williamsport before the rebels were able to do either of these things. Lee gave Stuart the task of screening the army as it coalesced around Hagerstown and Williamsport. His orders for July 8th were to keep the Federal Cavalry as far away from the rest of the army as possible. So on the morning of the 8th, Stuart led five brigades, all but Imboden's and Robertson's, and five batteries of horse artillery eastward along the National Road. The cavalry of Buford and Kilpatrick's divisions were thoroughly worn out. Private Leander Schooley of the 1st Indiana Cavalry wrote to his mother that, quote, It has rained night and day since we have been in Maryland. My feet have been wet for two weeks. Our clothes were wet and dirty, and all of us tired and worn out, unquote. Things were looking up that morning, though. Private William Glazier of the 12th New York Cavalry remembered, quote, The sun came out bright and warm this morning, enabling us to, in a few moments, dry our drenched blankets and garments, unquote. They weren't able to enjoy the sunny morning for long, because the Union Signal Corps station at Turner's Gap reported the approach of rebel cavalry. The signalmen had great visibility from atop South Mountain, and their presence would be a huge factor in the upcoming battle. By 10 a.m., Stuart's cavalry, General Grumble Jones's brigade in the lead, approached the Union skirmish line near Beaver Creek. 
Buford's vedettes held the bridge that crossed the creek along the National Road. Stewart ordered his men to dismount because, according to him, quote, an animated fight ensued, principally on foot, the ground being entirely too soft from recent rains to operate successfully with cavalry, unquote. After a short skirmish, the Union cavalrymen fell back upon their main line closer to the town. Buford had ordered his three brigades to deploy in battle lines perpendicular to the National Road, with Devon on the left, Merritt in the center, and Gamble on the right. Around 11 a.m., Captain William McGregor deployed his battery of horse artillery on a high ridge overlooking Boonesboro. To counter this, Lieutenant John Califf ordered his battery A, 2nd U.S. Artillery, to unlimber and return fire. More artillery of both cavalry forces went into action, but generally the Confederates had the upper hand. Lieutenant Alexander Pennington put his battery M, 2nd U.S. Artillery, at a cemetery. Years later, an officer in the battery corresponded with a former rebel and had this to say, quote, Every shot you fired that missed something in my battery hit a marble tombstone in that graveyard. The broken fragments of marble came like hail upon my men. You were ruining us. We did not think it fair for you to shoot tombstones at us, and we left." Unquote. In the History of the Laurel Brigade, Confederate Captain William N. MacDonald described the early phase of the battle. Quote, there was now a spirited and deafening combat between the artillery of the opposing commands, on ridges facing one another, while in the valley between skirmish lines of dismounted men fought with their long-range guns." Unquote. Colonel Thomas Devon, Buford's hard hitter, tried to send his men forward in order to dislodge McGregor's guns, but intense canister fire drove them back. Meanwhile, Colonel Milton Ferguson led his brigade along the Williamsport-Boonsboro Road in an attempt to outflank Devon's brigade. Buford called upon Kilpatrick to send reinforcements to protect the flanks and relieve some of his worn-out men. The 5th Michigan Cavalry of Custer's Brigade went in on the right of the Union line, and the 6th Michigan advanced on the left. Both regiments were at least partially armed with Spencer repeating rifles, which gave them a significant advantage in rate of fire. Colonel Russell Alger led the 5th and managed to drive back the Confederates of Jones's Brigade, but Alger was wounded in the action and heavy artillery fire halted their advance. Similarly, on the left of the Union line, the 6th Michigan Cavalry had some initial success in stabilizing their defense and pushed the rebels backward. Captain James Harvey Kidd of the 6th later wrote of the effectiveness of their repeating rifles, quote, We had here a good opportunity to test the qualities of the Spencer carbines, and, armed as we were, we proved more than a match for any force that was encountered. The firing was very sharp at times and took on the character of skirmishing, the men taking advantage of every cover that presented itself. Confederates were behind a stone fence, we in a piece of woods along a rail fence, which ran along the edge of a timber. Between was an open field. Several times they attempted to come over the stone wall and advance on our position, but each time were driven back. Once an officer jumped up on the fence and tried to wave his men forward, a shot from a Spencer brought him headlong to the ground, and after that no one had the temerity to expose himself in that way." Unquote. Despite the firepower, the Confederates never really let up the pressure. Occasionally driven back, they kept coming on. Kilpatrick had thrown Custer and Richmond's brigades into the fight, and all of Buford's division was actively engaged. Couriers were sent back to General Pleasanton, informing him that they feared Stewart's division might drive them out of Boonesboro, and they'd be compelled to fall back to Turner's Gap in the mountain. Luckily for the Federal Cavalry, help was on the way. Meade was aware of the situation at Boonesboro, and that morning he had ordered the closest infantry support to move through the Gap to reinforce Buford and Kilpatrick. General Oliver Howard's 11th Corps had bivouacked the previous night at Middletown. They were at the head of the infantry and began marching through Turner's Gap over the course of the morning and afternoon of the 8th. 
The lead division, led by General Carl Schurz, arrived at Boonesboro, just in time to see the end of the battle. Around 7 p.m., after nearly nine hours of fighting, the Confederates were running low on ammunition, and the prospects of fighting infantry were not promising, so Stuart finally decided to break off the fight. He would later write, quote, About this time I was informed that the enemy was heavily reinforced, and that our ammunition, by this protracted engagement, was nearly exhausted, and despairing of getting possession of the town, which was completely commanded by artillery in the mountain gap, and believing that in compelling the enemy to act upon the defensive, all that day retreating before us, the desired object had been finally attained. I began to retire toward Funkstown, except Jenkins' brigade, which was ordered to its former position on the Williamsport Road." Unquote. Casualties were fairly light, each force probably lost about 80 men or so in the Battle of Boonesboro. It ended up being something of a reverse of the results of the Battle of Hagerstown, where the Confederates had mostly been successful in driving the Federals back, but the late arrival of Union infantry sealed the deal. But in the case of Boonesboro, both sides could fairly claim some sort of victory, as they'd both accomplished their objectives. For Buford and Kilpatrick, they successfully held the town and kept the rebel cavalry from capturing the mountain passes. But as I mentioned earlier, Stuart's intention wasn't to capture the town. His goal was to keep the Yankee cavalry as far away from Williamsport as possible, which they succeeded in doing. Their preemptive strike against the Federals at Boonesboro kept them at arm's length, which would have a tremendous effect in the coming days. Stuart's men might have succeeded in capturing the town had it not been for the effectiveness of the Union Signal Corps. General Kilpatrick would write in his campaign report, quote, The Battle of Boonesboro was fought and won by the aid of signals. Every movement of the enemy was seen by the signal officers occupying an elevated position and quickly transmitted, unquote. The main body of the Army of the Potomac was once again on the march on July 8th. Five of the seven Army Corps were in close proximity to the mountain passes and began crossing over that day. Behind Howard's 11th Corps were the 5th and 6th Corps. The 1st and 3rd were moving further south toward Crampton's Gap. The last two, the 2nd and 12th Corps, with the artillery reserve in tow, had just arrived at Frederick on the morning of the 8th and still had some ground to make up. When the 2nd Corps reached Monocacy Junction, south of Frederick, some of the men took the time to clean themselves. A soldier in the Philadelphia Brigade remembered, quote, Many of the men availed themselves of the opportunity of a good bath in the Monocacy, and a wash and a clean-up, after that muddy march of about 20 miles was necessary as well as refreshing, unquote. Fall went according to plan, the army should be over South Mountain by the 9th or early on the 10th at the latest. Back in Hagerstown and Williamsport, the Army of Northern Virginia continued to gather as the Confederate leaders contemplated what they should do next. Even with this brief respite from the rain on the morning of the 8th, heavy rains of the night before prevented water levels of the Potomac from dropping at all. Robert E. Lee communicated with the civilian leaders in Richmond, though his dispatches would not reach the Confederate capital for several days. From his headquarters in Hagerstown, he wrote to President Jefferson Davis on the 8th, quote, my letter of yesterday should have informed you of the position of this army. Though reduced in numbers by the hardships and battles through which it has passed since leaving the Rappahannock, its condition is good, and its confidence unimpaired. When crossing the Potomac into Maryland, I calculated upon the river remaining fordable during the summer, so as to enable me to recross at my pleasure, but a series of storms commencing the day after our entrance into Maryland has placed the river beyond fording stage, and the present storms will keep it so for at least a week. I shall therefore have to accept battle if the enemy offers it, whether I wish to or not, and as the result is in the hands of the sovereign ruler of the universe, and known to him only, I deem it prudent to make every arrangement in our power to meet any emergency that may arrive." Unquote. 
He would go on to once again suggest in vain that Davis allow General Pierre Gustave to taunt Beauregard to create an ad hoc force to threaten Washington from the south. That pressure from Beauregard would occupy any reinforcements being sent to trap Lee's force. Even if Davis had any intention of doing so, which he didn't, there wasn't enough time anyway. Later that day, Stuart would send reports to Lee's headquarters about the status of the Army of the Potomac, which would give him an idea of how much time they had to construct a defense. Colonel Edward Porter Alexander, according to his memoirs, believed that they did not have much time before the Yankees would be upon them. Quote, But meanwhile, a great opportunity would be presented to the enemy. Here, we would be pinned up, with a river at our backs, with ammunition greatly reduced, and fresh supplies cut off, and defeat would now be ruined. A chance was offered to Meade, as great as McClellan had missed the year before at Sharpsburg. We expected him to be on us in 48 hours, and vigorous efforts were made to be ready for him. Unquote. From July 7th through the 9th, the ground around Williamsport was reconnoitered to find the best possible place to set up a defensive position. Lee, Longstreet, Ewell, Hill, and their respective staff engineers, including Colonel Alexander and Major Jedediah Hotchkiss, met to discuss their options. Porter Alexander continued, quote, Early the next morning, Tuesday, July 7th, I was sent for to join General Lee's engineer officers in a reconnaissance of the country and the selection of a line of battle upon which the Army could make the best possible fight. We spent three full and busy days on this work, the enemy not following us nearly as closely as we expected. There was no very well-defined and naturally strong line, and we had to pick and choose and string together in some places by makeshifts and some little work. And on the last day, at one point where we differed, General Lee came out to see the ground and decided in my favor, of which I was very proud. Unquote. As Alexander stated, the engineers presented Lee with their findings of which he approved, and they quickly went to work building fortifications for the infantry and artillery. All day on the 9th and 10th of July, Confederate soldiers and enslaved black laborers built the defensive fortifications under the supervision of Lee's engineers. The longer it took for the Army of the Potomac to close in on their position, the more time they would have to strengthen the breastworks. During this time, Union POWs, guarded by Pickett's divisions, were ferried across the Potomac on flatboats in order to be escorted up the Shenandoah Valley to the closest railroad terminus at Stanton. Lieutenant Randolph Shotwell of the 8th Virginia, Garnett's Brigade, described his feelings upon returning to his native state, quote, Once more on old Virginia shore, and right glad to arrive. This afternoon, all the prisoners and their guards were ferried over the Potomac, about 25 men per boatload. The river is very full, muddy, and swift, making the passage a not entirely safe or pleasant undertaking. I came over in the first boat, and coming to the crest of a grassy slope where I am now riding, stretched myself on the sward to rest and watch the ferrying over of the prisoners. It is novel, and not unpicturesque scene. The broad rolling river with a creaking craft moving to and fro across it, the dense mass of blue-clad prisoners, the innumerable wagons, ambulances, artillery, and animals crowding the broad meadows of the suburbs of Williamsport, distant about a mile from where I am now lying, the tall church spire pointing to the peaceful skies, and beyond them, high in the horizon, the bursting shells of Lee's artillery near Hagerstown. Yet there is a somberness about the drizzly atmosphere, and leaden sky that befits the contrast of the scene below. This dribbling return in a crazy craft, with the enemy howling at our heels, with the flaunting, cheering, joyous enthusiasm of our passage of this same stream scarce sixteen days ago. True, we are not whipped, and need not return same as we wish, but for all that may be said and truly said to that effect, the contrast is a sad one. Unquote. 
While Stuart's cavalry screened the approaches to Williamsport from the east, Lee worried about Union forces coming from the Virginia side to trap them. To watch out for any potential threat, he ordered General Imboden to send the 18th Virginia Cavalry, led by his brother, Colonel George Imboden, to pick up the approaches to Williamsport from the south side of the Potomac. Lee, who maintained his dry sense of humor, facetiously said to Imboden, quote, You know this country well enough to tell me whether it ever quits raining about here? If so, I should like to see a clear day soon. Unquote. July 9th was relatively quiet in terms of fighting and marching. Pleasanton's cavalry was exhausted. Since the end of the battle, Kilpatrick's division had traversed at least 60 miles, and Buford's division had covered nearly 100. They'd both been in near-constant motion and had fought at least a half-dozen battles and skirmishes with rebel cavalry over the past six days. Nevertheless, Buford's cavalry marched up the National Road on the afternoon of the 9th and briefly skirmished with Stuart's vedettes around 4 p.m. The rebel horsemen fell back a couple of miles toward their main line at Funkstown, and no great battle occurred. The infantry and artillery had spent almost all of the 7th and 8th marching to Middletown and Frederick, and then across South Mountain. Quite exhausted, they would not make much headway on the 9th. Private J.C. Williams of the 14th Vermont Infantry recorded in his journal, quote, No march today, and consequently no fighting, for I don't think Lee will risk another battle this side of the river. The supply train has arrived and three days' rations have been issued. What a grand thing it would be if Lee's army could be captured. Such a result would virtually end the war, but I fear no such brilliant achievement will be accomplished. Unquote. While Private Williams expressed a rather pessimistic attitude about catching Lee, another federal soldier explained why this period of rest was necessary. Quote, it is readily understood that meat stopping was only such a measure as the laws of humanity demanded, and nothing was lost by this delay. But the men, somewhat rested and refreshed by their short halt, were in a much better condition to resume their work in the morning, which they did with renewed zeal. Unquote. George Meade spent the 8th and 9th supervising the progress of the army. He also took the time to write to his wife Margareta on the 8th. Quote, I arrived here yesterday. The army is assembling at Middletown. I think we shall have another battle before Lee can cross the river, though from all accounts he is making great efforts to do so. For my part, as I have to follow and fight him, I would rather do it at once and in Maryland than to follow into Virginia. From the time I took command till today, now over ten days, I have not changed my clothes, have not had a regular night's rest, and many nights not a wink of sleep, and for several days did not even wash my face and hands, no regular food, and all the time in a great state of mental anxiety. Indeed, I think I have lived as much in this time as in the last thirty years. Old Baldy is still living and apparently doing well. The ball passed within a half inch of my thigh, passed through the saddle, and entered Baldy's stomach. I did not think he could live, but the old fellow has such a wonderful tenacity of life that I am in hopes he will. Unquote. As in his other letters to his wife, Meade really opens up about his exhausted physical and mental state. He also took the time to discuss his horse, Old Baldy. We also see a bit of Meade's humility. Though he was from a well-to-do family and had attended the nation's elite military school, he suffered through the hardships of an active campaign along with his soldiers. Aside from personal correspondence, he was in near-constant communication with the military leadership in Washington. On the 8th, General Halleck sent him urgent pleas to destroy Lee's army even if it meant dividing his own army and sending one half of it across the river in order to cut off Lee's possible route of escape. This kind of micromanagement had annoyed past army commanders, and unsurprisingly, Meade came to a similar feeling. On the 9th, he sent a telegram to Halleck informing him of the status of the Federal Army. Quote, the Army is moving in three columns, the right column having in it three corps. 
The line occupied today with the advance will be on the other side of the mountains, from Boonesboro to Roarsville. Two corps will march without their artillery, the animals being completely exhausted, many falling on the road, unquote. In another dispatch, he told the general-in-chief that, at least for the moment, he wasn't worried about the rebels escaping. Quote, I am still under the impression that Lee's whole army is between Hagerstown and Williamsport. I propose to move on a line between Boonesboro toward the center line from Hagerstown to Williamsport, my left flank looking to the river and my right toward the mountains, keeping the road to Frederick in my rear and center, unquote. He knew what conditions on the ground looked like. The Potomac was still way too high to be forded and the rebels had no pontoon bridge. His own army was only one or two days' march away from Hagerstown and Williamsport. Halleck seemed to agree with him, and his response was less frantic than previous telegrams. Quote, The evidence that Lee will fight north of the Potomac seems reliable. In that case, you will want all your forces in hand. Don't be influenced by any dispatch from here against your own judgment. Unquote. You get the impression that Halleck's pressure of Meade was coming from the higher-ups like Secretary Stanton and President Lincoln. Heavy rains continued on the night of the 8th, and weather conditions were not much better on the 9th as the Army of the Potomac continued to cross South Mountain at Turner's, Fox's, and Crampton's Gaps. All three had been the site of battles the previous summer when Lee's army invaded Maryland. Veteran soldiers recalled the old battlefields and recognized the site where the late Major General Jesse Reno had been mortally wounded. Captain Charles Wagan of the 124th New York of Ward's Brigade remembered, quote, We were the most unsoldierly, sorry-looking, victorious veteran army it has been the lot of any human being of this century to look upon. For two days we had been spattering each other with mud and slush, and soaked with rain which was falling in torrents. Our guns and swords were covered with rust. Our pockets were filled with dirt. Muddy water oozed from the torso of the footman's government shoes at every step ran out of the tops of the horsemen's boots and dropped from the ends of the fingers, noses, and chins of all." Unquote. In general, the soldiers of the Union Army were tired, hungry, worn out, wet, and muddy. Over the course of the campaign, they'd lost some 15,000 horses and mules. Even with the promise of nearly 5,000 more horses from Quartermaster General Montgomery C. Meggs, the cavalry, artillery, and reserve trains were in desperate need of mounts and draft animals. By July 10th, the entire Army of the Potomac was west of South Mountain, in the general vicinity of Boonesboro. The advance on the Confederate Army would begin that morning, with the cavalry screening their march. Maryland would continue to experience poor weather. The 10th was warm and muggy, with a light rain throughout the course of the day. Devon's, Gamble's, and Merritt's cavalry brigades moved up the National Road in the direction of Funkstown, followed closely by Kilpatrick's division and Sedgwick's Sixth Corps. The Federal cavalrymen encountered Stewart's vedettes that morning around 8 a.m., and a heavy skirmish broke out along the National Road until the Confederate pickets were driven back toward Funkstown. The town was relatively small, with only about 600 or so residents, and was nestled in a C-shaped bend in Antietam Creek. There were three main roads that entered the town from the east, one being the National Road. Antietam Creek covered the western side of Funkstown, and there were only two bridges that crossed the creek. If Stuart played his cards right, he could once again significantly delay the advance of the Federal Army. This time he was on the defense, so he arrayed his cavalry in a crescent-like formation that covered the eastern side of town. The Yankees continued to push the rebels to the west. Stuart's force was becoming overwhelmed. He only had part of his force at hand. Lieutenant Colonel Vincent Clawhammer Witcher's 34th Virginia Battalion, which held the right flank, Grenville Jones's brigade and a mix of other units, including a company of the 4th Virginia Cavalry led by Captain William B. Wooldridge, were on the left. 
He hoped to draw support from nearby infantry of the 1st Corps, so he sent couriers to James Longstreet requesting support. Longstreet in turn ordered several brigades to be sent to the bridges on the western side of Antietam Creek. Stewart then sent another courier across one of the bridges on the Antietam and found Colonel William W. White, a 28-year-old Georgian and former school teacher, and... You guessed it. ...lawyer. White previously commanded the 7th Georgia Infantry, but replaced the wounded General George Tig Anderson after he was wounded on July 2nd near the Wheatfield. White commanded Anderson's brigade, which was chosen to hold the bridge. Sturt's courier urged White to lead his brigade over the creek to support the cavalry, but White initially refused. He rode over to meet with Stuart, who demanded that he follow the order. White told Stuart that he was under orders from General Evander Law to stay at the bridge. He later wrote, quote, Stuart then remarked that I was subject to his orders, and as to this man Law, he knew nothing of him. General Stuart being so much my superior in rank, I felt bound to obey his orders, and I immediately returned and brought the brigade forward, unquote. Here we see an example of the confusing chain of command of Civil War armies. Should an interim brigade commander like White follow the orders of his interim division commander, General Law, or an officer of higher rank of the cavalry? In the moment, White made the right decision. Reinforcements were desperately needed to hold off the superior Union force attacking them. The brigade made their way across the bridge and through the town. Stuart ordered Colonel White to report to General Fitzhugh Lee, who initially ordered him to halt the brigade in the road until the Confederate artillery had opened fire, likely the batteries of Captain Robert Chu and Captain Basil C. Manley. After a few minutes of intense counter-battery fire, Lee ordered White to advance against Buford's dismounted skirmishers. White wanted to order his regiments to deploy into a battle line, but Lee told him there was no time. He protested, but again Lee ordered him forward into columns of four. Whereas White was in the right when he followed Stuart's orders to join the fight, he probably should have disregarded Lee's directive. The army commander's nephew had no experience leading infantry and did not anticipate what was about to happen. White's three Georgia regiments advanced in their marching columns toward Buford skirmishers who were posted in a thick wood on high ground. Yankee sharpshooters occupied houses and farm buildings, and Lieutenant John Califf's artillery battery was deployed amongst the cavalry. Had the Confederates maneuvered into line of battle before getting so close to the enemy, they wouldn't have suffered as badly as they did, but instead, dozens of men were killed or wounded as Califf's gunners pounded them with artillery shells and the sharpshooters picked them off. They even had to contend with friendly fire when a shell from one of Manley's guns prematurely exploded over the Georgians and injured or killed at least a half a dozen men. Finally, White got his men into line, and despite the intense fire, they were able to push the Yankee troopers back. By the afternoon, many units were beginning to run out of ammunition. First, the limbers of Chu's battery ran dry, then Shoemaker's battery. General Stewart rode up to Captain John Shoemaker to inquire why he was no longer firing and why his men were lying on the ground. Shoemaker told him that they had no more ordnance with which to fire, and his men were taking cover from the Union shells bursting around them. Stewart responded, quote, then let them stand up for moral effect, unquote. After which the artillerymen of Shoemaker's artillery company called him Moral Effect Stewart. Buford feared that the rebel infantry would overwhelm his three brigades, so he sent back couriers asking for reinforcements. Kilpatrick's division moved forward on Buford's left. Still, more help was needed. The artillery and musket fire was intense. Buford himself was nearly struck when a bullet tore through his uniform but missed his body. His troopers were running low on ammunition, so he rode back to find the closest infantry commander. He ran into General Albion P. Howe, who commanded a division in the 6th Corps. 
Buford urged Howe to send in infantry reinforcements, but Howe initially balked as he was only under orders to hold his position and not bring on a general engagement. Howe sent a courier back to General Sedgwick asking for permission to send a brigade to help Buford, but the courier returned with the same orders not to bring on a general engagement. Buford and Howe worked out a scheme so that the latter general could send in infantry support without disobeying orders. Pleasanton wanted Buford to move his division further to the north in order to cut off the Confederate route of escape to Hagerstown. If Buford moved his whole division to the right, then his position he occupied currently would be vacant, and Howe felt that it would justify sending in his infantry to hold the center of the Union line, so that's what they did. He ordered Colonel Lewis Grant to lead the 1st Vermont Brigade to the wooded high ground that Buford's men vacated. Grant, a 25-year-old Vermonter and lawyer, did so. White's Georgians, which had spent the past hour or so fighting dismounted cavalry, now ran into Grant's Vermonters. Aided by artillery, they held their own against the rebel infantry. Fitz Lee then ordered the Georgia Brigade to fall back, much to Colonel White's chagrin. Meanwhile, Stewart had commandeered a second infantry brigade. This time it was Sims' brigade, of McClaw's division. General Paul J. Sims, you might recall, had been mortally wounded on July 2nd, so the brigade was led by Colonel Good Bryan. Bryan was a 51-year-old Georgian and commanded the 16th Georgia Infantry Regiment leading up to the battle. He was fairly old to be a regimental commander. In fact, if you looked at his background, it seemed slightly unusual that he wasn't at least a brigade commander. He was a West Point graduate of the class of 1834 and was a Mexican war veteran, but an army career did not appeal to him and he left the service for civilian life less than a year after his graduation from the U.S. Military Academy. Aside from his brief return as a volunteer officer in Mexico, Good Brian spent the pre-war years as a slave-owning planter and, you guessed it, lawyer. Colonel Bryan led his brigade of Georgia infantry into the fight against the Vermont Brigade. He attempted to outflank the Vermonters on their left, but failed to do so and fell back in the face of fierce musket fire. The rebels continued to press forward and charge the Vermonters' skirmish line twice, but both times were repulsed. Private Wilbur Fisk of the 2nd Vermont Regiment wrote afterward, quote, Their officers tried to urge them on, and they shamed and threatened them. They told them that there were but a few of us, and we could easily be captured. Some turned on their heels and run. Some rallied again to the charge. They came on a few rods further when their ranks broke and the whole battalion, officers and all, skedaddled for their very lives. They had discovered they were blundering on a nest of Vermonters." Grant's men took advantage of their superior terrain. Not only were they posted on high ground, but it was also heavily wooded. Confederates had to march across open ground to reach them. Instead of maintaining a tight battle line, the Green Mountain Boys spread out in a long skirmish line, which allowed them to occupy more ground. With the cover of trees, rocks, fences, and farm buildings, they were able to hold off a larger Confederate infantry force for several hours. During one assault, Major Henry McDaniel, who commanded the 11th Georgia of White's Brigade, was wounded in the abdomen by a mini-ball. He was badly gut-shot with his intestines exposed. Two of McDaniel's cousins and another wounded soldier named William T. Lassiter would carry him off to safety. Miraculously, he survived the wound, though he was captured several days later when the field hospital he was left at was abandoned by the Confederates. McDaniel spent the rest of the war in captivity at Johnson's Island in Ohio. Years after the war, he succeeded the former Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens as Governor of Georgia. He served out Stevens' term and was re-elected a year later. McDaniel himself was succeeded by a fellow officer in the Army of Northern Virginia, General John B. Gordon. The rebel infantrymen fell back toward the town, as the Vermonters and various cavalrymen continued to fire away at them with muskets and carbines. The fighting around Funkstown had lasted almost the entire day. 
After the infantry had failed to drive away the Federals and with darkness growing, Stuart ordered the two infantry brigades and his cavalry to retreat to the western side of Antietam Creek. Lieutenant George G. Benedict later concluded, quote, had the 6th Corps been pushed in on Lee's flank after this transaction and properly supported, some serious trouble might have been made for the Army of Northern Virginia. But the orders to the General were not to bring on a general engagement, and General Lee was not molested. The exploit of the Vermonters, however, was a tall feather in the cap of the brigade, and they were not allowed to remain wholly unconscious that they had done a good thing." Unquote. However, Jeb Stuart sang a much different tune in his campaign report weeks later. Quote, the enemy's advance was handsomely repulsed, in which Lieutenant Colonel Witcher's cavalry on foot behind a stone fence immediately on the left of the turnpike performed a very gallant part, standing their ground with unflinching tenacity. On the left, a portion of Fitz Lee's brigade under Captain Wooldridge, 4th Virginia Cavalry, who handled his skirmishers with great skill and effect, compelled the enemy's infantry to seek cover in a body of woods at some distance from our lines. In this day's operation, the infantry before mentioned participated very creditably, indeed, in the center, and I regret exceedingly that I have not the means of knowing the regiments and commanders, so as to mention them with that particularity to which by their gallantry they are entitled. But their conduct has no doubt been duly chronicled by their commanders and laid before the commanding general, a part of which was under his own eye. Owing to the great ease with which the position at Funkstown could be flanked on the right, and by a secret movement at night the troops were cut off. It was deemed prudent to withdraw at night to the west side of the Antietam, which was accordingly done." Unquote. Of course, all battlefield commanders try to paint the best picture of what they and their men did, so take Stuart's comments with a grain of salt. From a tactical standpoint, the Federals certainly got the best of the Rebels' mixed force of infantry and cavalry. Casualties were nearly equal, with about 200 men wounded, killed, or missing on both sides. Colonel William White's brigade probably had it the worst, with 25 men dead and another 101 wounded. This was another one where both sides could in some way claim a victory. Buford, Kilpatrick, and Grant successfully drove the Confederates back, and after nearly 12 hours of fighting, captured Funkstown. The road to Lee's army was now open. But conversely, Stuart had delayed the Federals for the entire day. His handling of the battle was not necessarily his finest work, but he bought more time for Lee, which was what he was called upon to do. It allowed the engineers and laborers more time to strengthen their defensive works. The infantry and artillery were able to safely move into their positions unmolested. By the end of July 10th, work on the breastworks was complete. When all was said and done, the line would stretch for approximately 9 miles. The engineers had selected a series of broken hills and ridges just west of Williamsport that generally ran north to south and was known to locals as Salisbury Ridge. The left flank was just a few hundred yards west of Hagerstown, and the right flank was anchored on the Potomac River near the small village of Downsville, which later led to the position being called the Downsville Line. Yule's Corps maintained the left wing, hills in the center, and long streets on the right. The Downsville line consisted of two parallel trenches. The forward trench just had rifle pits for sharpshooters. Dirt was packed around sheaves of wheat to provide more protection for the defenders. The second and main trench was more extensive and stronger. It consisted of breastworks packed with rocks, rails, and dirt for protection, and between the infantry positions were six-foot-wide gun parapets for the artillery. 
In terms of its construction, the strongest feature of the line was that no matter where they were attacked, the Union infantry would be caught in a crossfire. Lee was particularly worried about an attack on his right and center, so he had the engineers pay special attention to that sector of the line. The bulk of the artillery was placed there. Lee put his headquarters close to the center at the Tollgate House along the Williamsport-Hagerstown Turnpike where it intersected with the Downsville Road. Just exactly how strong the Downsville line was is certainly debatable. The Confederate engineers only had two or three days to quickly survey and construct the breastworks, but once they were finished they seemed quite satisfied. Porter Alexander would later write, quote, As fast as we got the troops upon our line of battle, everything, infantry and artillery, went to work fortifying it and making it stronger. I was given general charge again of all the artillery of our corps and left my own battalion to Huger as at Gettysburg. And as we got things into shape, oh how we all did wish the enemy would come out in the open and attack us, as we had done them at Gettysburg, unquote. A federal officer who later personally inspected the works was not overly impressed and said of them, quote, The rebel works in their front were built of wheat sheaves covered with earth so slightly covered that when he jumped upon them they let him through. In the rear of these was a strong line of gopher holes and rifle pits, unquote. Again, I think this is a reflection on the limited time that the Confederate engineers had in constructing their fortifications, but they used what time they had to great effect. Additionally, they used some of the natural terrain features to their advantage. The currently unfordable Potomac covered their right flank. In between the position the Army of the Potomac would take in the coming days and the Downsville line were a number of obstacles. The ground was not favorable for offensive tactics. The rain-soaked, muddy soil would have made any advance quite tedious. The ground did not offer much in the way of cover for the attacking force. A few hundred feet east of Salisbury Ridge was Marsh Run, a tributary of the Potomac, which covered the right and center of the rebel line. The creek could be forded, but with water levels much higher than normal, it would greatly slow the advance of Union infantry. Even after they cleared Marsh Run, there were two long parallel ditches that the laborers dug on either side of the first trench line. The Confederate left flank was unanchored, but it was protected by all of Stuart's cavalry, and any attempt that the Federals made to move around the flank could easily be seen and responded to. The last great advantage the Confederates possessed was the network of roads behind their lines, which could be used to maneuver troops to threaten sectors if attacked, and if they needed to evacuate, they could do so by using multiple roads to expedite the process. Lee wrote another dispatch to be sent to President Davis that day. It read, quote, Mr. President, since my letter on the 8th instant, nothing of importance in a military point of view has transpired. The Potomac continues to be past fording, and owing to the rapidity of the stream and the limited time we have for crossing, the prisoners and wounded are not yet over. I hope they will be able to cross today. I have not received any definite intelligence of the movements or designs of the enemy. A scout that a column which followed us across the mountain has reached Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, and other bodies are reported as moving by way of Frederick from Emmitsburg, as if approaching in this direction. If these reports be correct, it would appear to be the intention of the enemy to deliver battle, and we have no alternative but to accept it if offered. The army is in good condition, and we have a good supply of ammunition, the supply of flowers affected by the high waters, which interfere with the working of the mills. With the blessing of heaven, I trust that the courage and fortitude of the army will be found sufficient to relieve us from the embarrassment caused by the unlooked-for natural difficulties of our situation, if not to secure valuable and substantial results. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, R.E. Lee, General. Unquote. The infantry of the Army of the Potomac had been on the move all day. 
Meade split the army into three columns, with the 6th, 11th, and 1st marching up the National Road toward Funkstown, the 5th and 3rd moved along the Williamsport-Boonsboro Road, and the 2nd and 12th along the Sharpsburg Turnpike, during which they crossed the Antietam Creek on the battlefield of that same name. General Thomas Neal's Light Division had been reinforced by Baldy Smith's militia at Waynesboro and had moved to Leitersburg, Maryland. The 6,000-man railroad division, led by General Benjamin F. Kelly, had reached Hancock, Maryland, about 22 miles to the west of Williamsport. If Kelly acted quickly, his force could either move along the north bank of the river and threaten Lee's left flank, or they could cross the river at Hancock and move to cut off Lee's route of escape. Even in poor weather, a 20-mile march could be accomplished in one day. By the morning of the 11th, the Confederate infantry had abandoned Funkstown, and in Hagerstown, only a small force of skirmishers and cavalry were left behind. During their withdrawal to the Downsville line, many sick and wounded were left behind. Foraging of the area continued during their withdrawal and up until the point that the Union Army was upon them. D.P. Saylor, a local citizen and elder in the Church of the Brethren, wrote, quote, the line of the rebel entrenchments passed through Roland's farm, and he estimates 2,000 bushels of his wheat being packed in and destroyed by the rebels. He lost seven of his best horses and all of his cattle. He thought he had 40 head. All his bacon, he knew he had 17 hams. Shoulders and sides, he did not know the number of the pieces. All his corn and nearly all his hay were stolen." Unquote. Sailor also recorded that the Confederates broke into the Roland's house and took anything of value. After they left, he said, quote, the house was filled with a stench peculiar to the rebels, unquote. In fact, if you read through the accounts of Marylanders and Pennsylvanians during the campaign, they quite frequently mention how badly Confederate soldiers smelled. The Army of Northern Virginia was entrenched along the Downsville line, and ready to receive an attack from the approaching Army of the Potomac, which they expected would come soon. Work on a new pontoon bridge was already underway, and hopefully would be completed within the next day or so. On the 11th, Robert E. Lee issued General Orders 76, which was to be read to the soldiers of the army. A copy of the orders was conspicuously left behind in Hagerstown and was picked up by troopers of Judson Kilpatrick's division. Lee hoped to instill confidence in his own soldiers, while simultaneously showing the Yankees that their resolve was still unbroken. The orders read, quote, After the long and trying marches, endured with fortitude that has ever characterized the soldiers of the Army of Northern Virginia, you have penetrated to the country of our enemies, and recalled to the defenses to their own soil those who were engaged in the invasion of ours. You have fought a fierce and sanguinary battle, which, if not attended with the success that has hitherto crowned your efforts, was marked by the same heroic spirit that has commanded the respect of your enemies, the gratitude of your country, and the admiration of mankind. Once more you are called upon to meet the enemy, from whom you have torn so many fields' names that will never die." Once more, the eyes of your countrymen are turned upon you, and again do your wives and sisters, fathers and mothers, and helpless children lean for defense on your strong arms and brave-hearted. Let each heart grow strong in the remembrance of our glorious past, and in the thought of the inestimable beings for which we contend, and invoking the assistance of that heavenly power which has so signally blessed our former efforts, let us go forth in confidence to secure the peace and safety of our country. Soldiers, your old enemy is before you. Win from him honor worthy of your right cause, worthy of your comrades dead on so many illustrious fields. R. E. Lee, General. Unquote. And that's where I'm going to leave off for today, folks. In the next episode, I'll cover the final days of the Gettysburg Campaign as Lee and Meade's armies face off for a final showdown along the banks of the Potomac. 
Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, history. Brothers, native of the soil, waiting for the property we gained by on the soil. When first the rights was written and the cry drew near and far, we raised on high the bunny blue flag that bears a single star. Hurrah, hurrah, for southern rights, hurrah, hurrah, for the bunny blue flag that bears a single star. Hurrah, hurrah. Thank you.